Welcome to the Godspeed Institute, an enlightening and positive forum exploring all the world's religions and spiritual belief systems as an on-air classroom in an effort to help people better understand each other, promote tolerance, and foster peace. I'm your host, Care Hallandbeck. Stephen Olson is president of CEM Productions. He has produced and directed documentary films, television series, and feature news reports throughout the world for U.S. and European broadcasters. Stephen's work has won numerous national and international awards, including the National Emmy Award for Outstanding Director, the DuPont Columbia Award for Excellence in Broadcast Journalism, and the George Foster Peabody Award. He currently produces and directs Global Spirit, which he calls the first internal travel series on national television. Global Spirit is an inquiry into humankind's belief systems, wisdom traditions, and states of consciousness, presented by actor John Cleese and hosted by author and spiritual seeker Phil Cousineau. Formerly, Olson was co-founder and former vice president of original programming at Link TV, where he produced a number of original programs and television series, including the Peabody Award-winning Mosaic, World News from the Middle East. He holds a master's degree in visual anthropology and communications from Temple University. Stephen, welcome to the program, and thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Kara. Happy to be here. Well, and we're, we're sort of on similar paths, you and I, and I'd love to hear a little more about your journey. Um, how were you drawn to this path of bridge building between cultures through media? I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your, your youth, perhaps, a, a pertinent vignette that helps to illustrate mm -hmm. your life. Well, I did grow up in San Francisco. Um, and came of age in the late 60s, uh, when this city was a sort of mecca for the so-called consciousness movement at that time. Uh, I was going to a Jesuit high school. Uh, I had been an altar boy, <laughs> um, reciting mass in Latin, and uh, got quite, uh, I guess I quite moved or touched by the rituals uh, surrounding the Roman church. Uh, and then, as you know, uh, late 60s, early 70s, uh, the social world here sort of turned upside down. Many things were called into question. Um, I started hearing the first music coming from India. I'll refer to the fabled Beatles White Album. I'll, I heard and talked to people who were just coming back from the East and thought that uh, this was actually the direction for me. So uh, I was then... Uh, painting and restoring old Victorian houses here to save money to travel and uh, set off uh, buying a bus in Amsterdam, filling it with passengers heading overland for a three or four month trip uh, to India, where I then stayed and traveled for another six months by myself um, and really uh, followed this, I guess, this internal yearning to uh, to explore who I am and uh, to see life and the world through other cultural lenses and perspectives. Thank you very much for that. Now, you mentioned the Jesuits starting off there, and, uh, and that resonated uh, some with me in my own background and experience, although I didn't in encounter the Jesuits really till I was an adult. 
um, I kind of went the other way around on this and uh, and uh, have the uh, sort of a foundational experience in the Roman Catholic Church, but in adulthood through the RCIA program at St. Ignatius Loyola in New York. And uh, that sort of got me hooked <laughs> then. But you, I, I went the other way around, which is interesting, because I had this career in television, and at some point there in New York, I said, I want to do something that helps people. I want to make some programming and do some things. This is a while back now, of course. Um, you know, that, that can really help people and guide people and young people and such. And so I went back to, for, to study theology as an adult in New York, and that, sort of, that affected my journey. I'm interested that yours began with the Jesuits and sort of made an impression on you in the in the church in terms of the rituals and such. Uh, does it play? Does that tradition play any role in your life anymore? I think perhaps. Let me just continue. You know, I think my appreciation of ritual um, was really fed uh, in my various uh, experiences and contexts with Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism in uh, India, Nepal, and, and the Far East. And um, what happened essentially was that I came back to my San Francisco neighborhood and met my neighborhood friends, and I was full of stories, uh, stories about the other, you know, stories about other religious traditions. And that storytelling, I found, was really captivating to a lot of people. And uh, essentially, that impulse to share what I had the grace or the ability to see and experience myself kind of led me into photography uh, and then from photography into filmmaking. Uh, so adding these kind of modes of communication, this, this, um, this interest to create an experience for people. Um, and that led me then into anthropology, uh, communications, uh, film studies, uh, and I think at that point, my focus was really on, on, on culture and cultural, uh, cultural perspectives, worldviews, things like that. Uh, finished a graduate degree in, in visual anthropology, uh, still had this spiritual yearning. And so gradually my interest in stories and films and, and humanity really moved from the culturally significant to the more, to the more deep structure of faith, religion, philosophy, spirituality. And so there was a kind of convergence of my storytelling impulse with what I was experiencing myself uh, through meeting great teachers and, and wanting to pass that on. Thank you so much, Stephen. Now at that point then, Cultural Educational Media, or CEM, 30 years ago. Now, what led you to form this company? How did you say, okay, that's it. I'm, this is what I'm going to do now. I'd been invited to go to Italy to work on a film about a rather famous French anthropologist, Maurice Godillier. Uh, I worked in Italy editing two films. Um, that was back in 16 millimeter film days on a flatbed editing console. Um, and that project, uh, just as it was approaching completion, um, needed to be subtitled and needed all the finishing work. And so uh, rather than doing this in Rome, uh, in a foreign language, as it were, uh, I convinced the producer to let me bring it back to San Francisco. And uh, so that project really sort of catalyzed setting up a nonprofit organization here 
to really be the sort of base for completing those films, getting them out to educational audiences. And then we had this nonprofit and we were all in a sense geared up and ready to go. So uh, we then just continued fundraising and um, telling other stories, making other films, building CEMs capacity. Um, so that's how we really got started in 1983 now. Yeah. 30 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> time, time flies, right? <laughs> Happy anniversary. <laughs> yeah. Oh, goodness. Um, now, since the beginning of CEM, the term unity consciousness has been the focus of your work. Now, what does this phrase mean to you, unity consciousness, and how did it come about? Well, unity consciousness uh, was not a term I was necessarily thinking of in my 20s. Uh, or even 30s, it was something that I was feeling uh, through my encounters and exchanges with different people that there was a kind of core humanity uh, that transcended religious differences, you might say, on the most simple level, and that, in a sense, everyone was really praying to the same God, you know. Um, so this notion then led me into... Uh, Sufism, for example, and the study of Sufism, which is very much about the unity uh, at the heart of all faiths. And uh, so I furthered my, my studies there. I, I met a wonderful Sufi teacher, a Sufi saint, actually, in Sri Lanka named Bawa Muhayyadin, um, the same person who actually touched and affected Coleman Barks to translate Rumi. Um, anyway, Bawa, as someone said, uh, kind of put the dot on my forehead uh, for um, those years and and uh, basically gave me the sort of blessing to keep going, taking pictures, telling stories. And uh, I, 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 I must consider him one of my spiritual mentors. Um, and he was all about love and about unity. Uh, he himself had a wide following of people from different faiths. Uh, he was living in Philadelphia and alternate years in Philadelphia and in Jaffna, Sri Lanka. So Baba was the, the real catalyst um, and the reason why I applied to go to graduate school at Temple University in Philadelphia. Baba was there, and they also had this wonderful program in visual anthropology. So it really seemed like uh, the right place to be. Thank you. You know, back in the 80s, I, I was just thinking unity consciousness. I think even that has evolved so much because I recall, you know, ecumenical events and, and, and focal points during those times. And I remember in, engaging in activities where I sort of felt we were alone together. That's what ecumenical was starting to seem like to me, sort of alone together. And there was not as much engagement that was authentic. It was more about, you know, this is my point of view and I'd like you to come over to it. Um, and we, I think it's just evolved so much, um, and, and these phrases and words are still uh, developing. Here on this program over the past four years, we've seen a tremendous uh, interest in Sufism. Um, there are many interviews uh, that we've had with uh, Sufis of every kind, uh, every kind of walk of life. And, you know, you mentioned Rumi, and of course, this, this, he comes up very often as sort of like an apostle in a way <laughs> to the West, it seems. He's sort of like the pop star of, of, uh, of Sufi mysticism and, and, and speaks in the language that here, like especially in the U.S., it seems to me, just opens up people 
to a tradition uh, coming out of Islam uh, in, in, in such a beautiful, timeless way, just straight to the heart and from the heart. And um, I'm just wondering about, you know, if you've noticed this, this sort of uh, power of Sufism, this strength. Well, uh, certainly, uh, and I've noticed the power really uh, where Rumi is pointing, uh, the power of the, the transcendent experience, you know, uh, really Sufism is one channel, one path to realizing uh, or having or experiencing uh, something in a transcendent way. Um, now, combining that with a lot of things that were happening, you know, in San Francisco, the Bay Area, in the West, uh, there was another strain of what was what could be called unity consciousness, which which was which was coming from that direction. You know, um, I think Rumi and and Sufism specifically uh, points to the path of the heart, and uh, the Sufi path tends to be. Uh, a bit more of the, um, I would say, the householder's path. You know, you're actually meant to be taking on the the burdens of family life and challenges that, you know, sort of normal people face. So it's not a, a renunciant path at all. It's an engaged path. And uh, <clears throat> you brought up language, of course. Rumi's accessibility in the West um uh, owes itself largely to uh, translators like Coleman Barks, like Andrew Harvey, and others, Kabir Helminski, Camille Helminski, who have, who have actually made Rumi's Persian um, very accessible to the West. And of course, this is a whole other topic uh, between those who feel that too much liberties have been taken and uh, others who feel that no, it's exactly, it's exactly the liberty um, above and beyond a literal translation that allows people the the entry into uh, the world of Islamic mysticism. Without that, it is uh, kind of a frozen world, impenetrable world. So, I think so much has to do with language. So much has to do with um, the meanings and understandings that we bring to some of the great teachers, like. Jalaluddin Rumi and Shams of Tabriz. Stephen, you've produced a tremendous body of work, uh, documentaries, television series. Could you please touch on some of the other programs you've done, for example, Mosaic, and your interest in the Middle East? Sure. Um, so in my, in my 20s, I, I, I actually spent time uh, actually hitchhiking from Turkey through Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, uh, Israel, uh, then to Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan. Uh, I spent months in these countries and uh, and was really touched by the hospitality there, the, the the strength and power of culture, tradition, family, um, and uh, so this spurred a, a kind of interest in that area. Um, when. I then became becoming a media consultant. Uh, you know, when you make documentary films, you you sometimes need another job between films to keep this. It's it's almost like the poetry of nonfiction cinema. You know, um, uh, very underpaid and very time consuming. So, I was working as a media consultant and was working around the former Soviet Union. Um, 
and was uh, working for an NGO who then invited me to come and help them uh, get the license to start Link TV uh, here in San Francisco. And so this was just about the time of 9-11. This was just about the time when the the world and the U.S. was certainly uh, wondering, you know, who are these people and, and, and what do they want and why are they doing this? And a lot of confusion. So I first, my first job at Link TV really was, was creating the Mosaic series, uh, a news digest presenting points of view from different Middle Eastern broadcasters so that there was, so we underscored the point that there was no single Arab point of view. Uh, there were many Arab points of view and not only, not everyone in the Middle East were, was an Arab, you know, uh, we included Turkish broadcasters, Moroccan, Syrian, Saudi, Israeli, different points of view. And um, this program became quite successful. Uh, not only did it uh, win a Peabody Award, but uh, we found out that the White House was taping every program that we were airing. Uh, I should say this was before Al Jazeera. Uh, this was before uh, a lot of these uh, international news shows that now exist. And uh, it was a real service, I think, at, at the time. Um, that series then led to other series, investigative journalism series uh, uh, called Spotlight, uh, another sort of consciousness-oriented series called Lunch with Bokhara, which I produced, uh, hosted by a woman um, who cooked lunch for two guests who would arrive, usually from different traditions, and uh, engage in uh, conversations. Uh, that series then sort of morphed into Global Spirit, which is uh, a one-hour format rather than half-hour lunch with Bokhara. This is a one-hour format that integrates film elements because as I'm a filmmaker, I'm well aware of the power, the experiential power of film. So the idea with Global Spirit then is that we let film do what it does best, inspire create a sense of an experience of a topic and then let conversation do what it does best, uh, analyze, explore, um, investigate from different points of view. Uh, so it's kind of a, it's meant to be a kind of a fairly unique format, I think. And, uh, it's actually attracted a growing and very committed following. I'm happy to see both on public television and on link TV. Mm. Yes, thank you so much. Uh, the time seems to be ripening for these topics. Um, I recall, um, you know, 20 years ago, people wanting to discuss uh, spirituality on TV and such, uh, sort of getting laughed out of the <laughs> the room, but continuing anyway. And we'll talk a little about that, about the evolution of, of that as well. But let's talk about global spirit now. How did actor John Cleese come to be involved in the program. I'm, I think our listeners might like that to hear about that. You put a program out on national television and it falls into a lot of living rooms, you know, and it's the wonderful thing about, uh, about mass media. You never really know uh, who's watching. And uh, so we have had rather well-known audience members, John Cleese being one of them. Uh, Prince, we found out was another who sent us a very kind donation at one point. Um, but with John Cleese, um, we heard that he was a fan. We contacted him. We stayed in touch for 
almost two years, really, before he told us that he was on a one-man stand-up comedy tour, and he would have one afternoon free in Manchester, England, on May 25th. That was about three years ago, and uh, so invited me to come. I came to Manchester, rented a studio, uh, wrote the scripts, and I mean, this was a really funny thing for me because I was actually writing the intros and outros to each program, you know, quote, for John Cleese, um, and, uh, you know, not so much trying to make them funny, uh, just trying to make them relevant and uh, engaging. And so uh, we spent a few hours sitting down together, going over them. He kind of made them his own. And then as a real professional, sat down in front of four studio cameras and uh, delivered uh, wonderfully genuine and witty uh, openings and closings to each Global Spirit program. Yes, I, I think it's hard for him not to be uh, witty. <laughs> it comes so naturally to him. Yeah. But let's just talk about Global Spirit a little more in terms of the series. I know you said you mentioned uh, it, it's you settled on the one-hour format and such. But now, what, what was your hope for this series? What does it explore? And why is it important to you at this time? There's such important teachers and teachings that are out there in our world. And... Uh, most people are uh, writing books, publishing books, and finding certain audiences through wonderful writings. Um, our interest was to actually create a conversation, uh, a format where we would bring people together um, in a rather spontaneous, engaged way, let them meet each other, and let them interact and, and really kind of push each other's buttons so that we, we see a different kind of person. If you see our program, for example, uh, Oneness, the Big Picture with Deepak Chopra uh, and Rianne Eisler, you know, uh, Deepak is someone who appears on public television often um, in very, uh, I would say, structured pledge drives and other formats. Uh, but come into a conversation uh, with someone from a very different world and a host acts asking very um, unexpected questions, and uh, you really see a different uh, a different Deepak Chopra. And I think that's true with all of our shows. You know, there's there's many people who are on the kind of writer's circuit, and uh, they stand you know behind podiums at bookstores and elsewhere, and basically deliver uh, a really wonderful presentation. Global Spirit is not about that. Global Spirit is about uh, the long conversation. Uh, when I say the long conversation, it's, it's a term Phil Cousineau, our host, uh, and I use. The long conversation is the conversation about those issues that never go away. Who are we as human beings? Why are we here? What are our responsibilities to each other? How, how, do we, how should we envision the other? people of other faiths, you know, other species, um, et cetera. So we see global spirit as a, as a very necessary uh, exploration of timeless issues in our time, in this time when scientific research uh, is pointing in directions that indigenous cultures and, and indigenous wisdom traditions are pointing. And we have the possibility of, of seeing ourselves uh, in a new way as we ask those timeless questions. 
It seems to me that that is at the core of that's driving you, what you just said right now, that you have an opportunity where things are coming together and converging. And you, I know you're referring to others as as teachers, um, but you are a teacher, uh, Stephen, in doing this and being so committed to it and and getting the message out and in a way that, you know, attractive to people to sit and not be confronted by or intimidated by, but just have a conversation as human beings about these things that are sort of running in our heads as we go through our day anyway, as we live our lives, as people live their lives. They ask that somewhere in the back of the mind, why am I here? Why am I doing this? You know, sometimes life seems to make perfect sense. Sometimes it seems, you know, completely random. Um, and And so to provide the sort of you know, forum that you are provides this kind of anchor um, for for folks to explore something uh, safely. And I I can relate to that. And I guess my question for you is, uh, I guess a little more about, you know, you is why Mm. when you can direct so well and you can do anything, you know, you can direct the next Iron Man. Mm. Why, why this, what Mm. I'm, I want to push you a little here. Why why this arena? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I I think we are all teachers and students, you know, and um, uh, this isn't work for me. This is life for me. You know, this is the same. I'm the same kid uh, as a 19-year-old wandering around India for the first time saying to myself, my God, why am I here? How am I here? How is it that I can look? at this woman who's, you know, a leper with no nose and no fingers with her stumps pointed together right in my face, asking for money or a donation. Why is it that I'm experiencing this? And uh, what do I do with this? You know, what do I do with this experience? Uh, what does it mean? And I think, I think I'm doing the same thing uh, with global spirit, you know, uh, the, the, the series opens with a sort of superimposed uh, shot of a group of, of whirling dervishes. And there's one little boy at the center who's, who's in green, which is, a, which is a really kind of unusual image. And all these dervishes have their right hand opened upward to the sky and their left arm pointed downwards to the earth as they spin. And I somehow sometimes think of myself uh, as that, you know, I'm, 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 I had a, grace to be surrounded with great teachers and teachings and what happens somehow we sit down we talk for a couple of hours you know the teaching goes down through my right arm through the body and out through the left arm you know sort of like the editing room it sort of passes through me and the best programs i think are when i really get out of my own way and um so who am i you know who is that person who is, you know, quote unquote, directing, directing what, you know? Um, so it's, it's, it's all about this, this kind of ambiguity um, that uh, that's how I really see my, my role in this series. That's beautifully put. Thank you. I like your use of the word grace um, in these matters. We're about halfway through the program. I'm just going to take a short break for a program ID. Stephen, please stay on the line. This is Care Hallenbeck, and you're listening to the Godspeed Institute, a program dedicated to spiritually-based living and to religious tolerance. When we return from the break, we'll continue our conversation with award-winning television producer of Global Spirit, Stephen Olson. Stay with us.
Welcome back to the Godspeed Institute. You're live with CARE, and we're speaking with Stephen Olson, award-winning television producer of Global Spirit. How you doing over there, Stephen? Oh, just fine, thanks. <laughs> good, good. I uh, really enjoyed the first half of our conversation, and I just would like to continue a little bit now discussing the power of spirituality and media um, in both fiction and nonfiction. Uh, one of our, mm -hmm. you mentioned, fans of, of the program. And, um, you know, I don't spend as much time on Facebook and such as I really should, um, but I did notice at one point one of the... Uh, likes that we have is the from the director of uh, field of dreams <laughs> you know it's like i've got i really like that one um and uh it's you know a tremendous film uh conveying spiritual yeah. uh, you know reality through uh, baseball and using these kind of things um uh, we've just lost harold ramus a great director of groundhog day uh, oh. another immensely oh. popular movie but a completely spiritual uh, exploration, um, you know, done in a way that captured so many people. So, so, so often it happens this way, where the greatest spiritual story is told, you know, not having anything to do necessarily <laughs> with uh, anything directly spiritual or religious in nature, but just, uh, uh, as you said, you know, just questioning why am I here and why is this happening? So here you are, you know, living your work out through the media and exploring belief systems, uh, world traditions, all kinds of existential questions through your highly acclaimed TV program, Global Spirit. And I guess I want to ask you along the way, because I know it came together, what, in 2012, thereabouts? But it started for you probably a very long time ago when you were starting uh, CEM. And this is sort of a culmination of, of a long time and a journey getting to this place where you can do this. And I'm wondering what kind of barriers you've seen along the way or, or encountered um, regarding this kind of exploration of religion and spirituality in the media. One barrier is the word spirituality. As, as you well know, it's a huge barrier for so many people. Uh, it's such a loaded uh, term, and uh, it comes with such uh, assumptions uh, many people get really turned off by the whole notion of spirituality. Uh, so here we are calling our series Global Spirit. Um, there's something about the human spirit, however, that everyone recognizes because it's, it's, it's in each human being. And uh, so we tend to kind of forego the word spirituality and focus on that spirit within each person. Um, Having said that, uh, programming that deals with that spirit, um, at least in a nonfiction world of documentary or, or television series, is a very hard to place or to sell. Um, it's extremely hard. And, uh, you know, there have been, I mean, Oprah has been doing uh, extremely well uh, with her particular blend of that. Uh, but by and large, uh, these films have a very hard time getting placed. Uh, I made a film in Morocco, for example, at the Fez Festival of World Sacred Music. And uh, it's a wonderful music-driven film that presents musical groups from uh, Ireland, from Russia, from Morocco, from Afghanistan, from Mauritania. And it really uses the power of music to bring people together. 
it's a, it's a, it's a celebration. It's an exploration uh, exploration of, in this case, a Muslim country that invites people into its historic, you know, sites to perform Christian music, Jewish music. Um, it's really a brave festival for uh, a Muslim Arab country to be hosting. Um, you know, this film, amazingly enough, was shown in film festivals all over the world, you know, from Sarajevo to Tel Aviv to Tehran to Vancouver to Tribeca in New York City, 100 yards from the World Trade Center. Uh, this film showed and the festival director Peter Scarlett at the time said this was the most important film in the festival because it really represents our hope uh, to come together and and music has that transcendent power to bring people together. Um, wonderful festival life and you know the, the film showed on, on, on PBS and Link TV and and so on but it, it, it's much more difficult. I had such a difficult time uh, I, we say selling, but it's not really selling. We, the real word is getting carriage uh, for that kind of film in a market that is driven primarily uh, by problem-centered films. And I say that uh, as a documentarian uh, and as someone who watches you know, the, uh, the nominations for the Oscars every year, uh, myself winning the National Emmy Award for Best Director, it was really about a film in Afghanistan, you know, uh, uh, where four photojournalists gave their lives to tell a story. You know, it was a real tragic story about war, the legacy of war. And uh, that is really what moves people. And so if you have a good news story like um, Sound of the Soul was the name of my film from Morocco, uh, it's much harder to get the press's notice uh, it's harder to get into the most prestigious festivals. Um, that's just somehow the way it is. So we, I think we end up um, taking a deep breath and uh, moving into, in my case, moving into a television series where you have an ongoing presence, where you, what you're saying or what you're doing uh, becomes a kind of vessel uh, for ideas, teachers, teachings, in an ongoing way to find an audience and, and hold them. A smaller audience, a modest audience, you know, but uh, an audience that is moved by the the quality of the teaching and the quality of the program. And something else that can bring us together is the kind of technology uh, that's evolved um, in recent years that uh, allows me to be sitting here uh, in Maine, in coastal Maine, <laughs> and uh, Skyping with you out there on the other coast and uh, going through, uh, you know, New York City um, for distribution. I'm well, looking out this window where a bald eagle just came swooping down with something in its talons, and I'm hoping it wasn't my cat. Technology as also, I've wondered if the Internet has helped to move this topic along, because once that came along, the, the ability to connect with people all over the world from where you are and the sort of unsupervised nature of the web, so many conversations popped up about things not traditionally seen on television, faith, religion, um, spirituality, all kinds of uh, things that I think perhaps helped to give uh, this a voice. I know, uh, you know, in, in my own work over the years, it's certainly um, helped to, to develop this voice. 
that's not so censored perhaps by sort of, you know, marketing directors about what is and what is not going to sell or what is or is not going to be popular. It's not a rating system. You know what I mean by that? Yeah, and, sure. And so I'm wondering, you know, what's your what's your take on that? Do you think uh, do you think that your work has been helped by this? Certainly, you know, um, television still drives an awful lot of people to the web. The truth is, uh, while television is dying, <laughs> uh, it still has the ability to drive a lot of people to a website. You know, the, the basic challenge with the Internet is, you know, when you throw a party, create a website, how do you get people to show up? Uh, so we're we're releasing Global Spirit on different platforms. Uh, public television stations throughout the country are picking it up. That's wonderful because people just discover it in their living rooms. Uh, Link TV, National Satellite Channel, similarly, you know, um, it's in one-third of all U.S. households. So a lot of people, we have about 3 million viewers through Link TV and about 2.5 million viewers through public television stations. So that's a lot of people. And we do send them to our website to find out more about the guests. Uh, we have short segments from each program on the Internet. Uh, we put those short segments on YouTube. Uh, by the way, our website is globalspirit.tv. And um, there you'll find uh, segments from all of our programs. And those go out. Uh, actually, what we do now is timed with our national broadcasts on Link TV every Sunday night at uh, 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern, we do a live simultaneous stream of the program. So that goes out globally, and we promote it, and we have viewers, you know, in Europe and the Far East, and it's, it's, it's really exciting to use Internet technology in its connective potential, you know, the simultaneity of people watching. We're following programs with a, a live Q&A with the program guests so that viewers can send in emails we can direct those comments or questions to our program guests it's very edifying you know to that that feeling of a connected wired world using you know this type of programming as a as a as the fire you know that people are gathering around that brings us together Thank you for sharing that. Um, I was going to ask uh, where people could find the program. and But I also want to talk about some of the other current projects that you're working on. I know you have something called One Through Love uh, that uh, is focused on uh, Rumi and something else um, that's, a, that's a very moving topic of healing a soldier's heart. And could you just yes. take uh, some time now to share about some of these other projects? Sure. Uh, One Through Love is a... Um is a website, one through, that's T-H-R-O-U-G-H, one through love.org, um, is basically a, a meeting place for Rumi lovers. And uh, by that we mean uh, scholars, teachers, practitioners from all over the world um, are included. We do portraits, we produce portraits of, of painters, for example, musicians, uh, Turkish, Afghan, French, British, and uh, each of them sort of has a, a sort of a different uh, flavor in their passion for unity consciousness expressed through Rumi's poetry. Uh, 
So that is a website now. It's it's also going to become a feature length film um, in the near future, and uh, so that is. That's a multilingual website also, I should say. Everything is subtitled in English, Turkish, Persian, and Arabic. So each of these portraits of Rumi lovers is going out in four languages, and we're kind of using subtitles and language to connect people uh, east and west uh, around that project. Um, Healing a Soldier's Heart is uh, my next documentary film it seems to take about four or five years to to make these and um this is the first film i've made since the moroccan uh film uh sound of the soul from the fez festival so healing a soldier's heart um follows the work of ed tick who's a psychotherapist and author uh who i met um and who was planning a trip to vietnam taking back a group of traumatized Vietnam vets uh, still suffering from PTSD 40 years after that war. And so uh, Ed invited me to join and ride along on the minibus as it went from the Mekong Delta in the south uh, through uh, Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City, Da Nang, and up to Hanoi. So this film really follows the journey of these vets back to the specific places where they were traumatized. Um, where they killed other human beings or when their own friends, um, where their own friends or men in their platoon were killed. And Ed takes them back to those spots and really works with them uh, to help them heal uh, from what he calls the soul loss of, of killing another person. So this is a very, uh, a very um, a dramatic film. Uh, somewhat open-ended story because we never knew, you know, how such a trip would end. <laughs> um, and uh, what happens in this case is the men are transformed, not just the men, but their their spouses accompany them on the trip. They meet their former enemies face-to-face. They meet Vietnamese culture for the first time. Most of these guys had never were able to travel around Vietnam Many of them spent, most of them spent their time in, in, in wired, barbed wired camps, you know. And so they meet the culture for the first time. They, they meet Buddhism for the first time. They meet uh, Buddhist monks. They ask for forgiveness. They realize that this culture and this faith um, puts a great value in forgiveness and compassion. And uh, so all of a sudden they go back to this place that, had been a war zone for them, and they realized that it's actually a vital, um, forgiving country, culture, religion. So it's a kind of transformative journey, and uh, our plan is to um, have this film shown in vet centers uh, and veterans organizations throughout the U.S., um, have Ed appear via Skype Connect, uh, as well as myself, as well as some of the vets who are in the film to answer questions and to develop a 10 part healing curriculum. Uh, once people have seen the film, particularly vets, once vets, PTSD suffering vets, not just from the Vietnam war, but also from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, once they see the film, it, it opens them to 
then explore more deeply uh, this healing arc that Etik has created. And so uh, we want to create that healing experience because of all the vets who have fought in Vietnam, fewer than one in a thousand actually choose to go back. This is a way of using the media, you know, in a sense to let other people kind of go back. And uh, our plan there is to actually um, create some Skype conversations between vets in the U.S. and uh, former Viet Cong and North Vietnamese soldiers uh, to try to promote healing. Well, I think that's that's just wonderful and uh, and needed. And, you know, as we become more aware of trauma and PTSD, it comes to my mind that there's a whole other side. Um, we've identified it in terms of the vets, uh, but there are, of course, so many civilians who have been yes. through that have not been addressed the same way. Uh, people in my family uh, who went through World War II in Europe and um, really, honestly, you know, did not get over it. There was a kind of like, well, we'll just move on now kind of thing going on, but it really catches up. Um, uh, sure. So I think there's a whole, there's a whole opportunity there uh, as well, you know, for the, uh, c for civilians, but uh, your focus. And on also for the vets from Iraq and the Afghan wars who do not have the ability to go back to villages and sit there you know, with village elders and talk about the war. You know, it's just too recent. Uh, the wounds are too fresh. Uh, yet with our vets, you know, 40 years later, <laughs> returning to a now peaceful country, uh, there's so many lessons for younger vets from the Afghan and Iraqi wars, and all wars, really. This notion of uh, soldier's heart, you know, is, is a term that originated in Civil War times, and it was precisely about what you were talking about, you know, sort of why is dad so sad and sitting in the corner alone so often? Oh, dad has soldier's heart. You know, um, people have known about this, what's now considered a, you know, uh, identifiable uh, disease for centuries. And it's always accompanied war. Uh, in Ed's um, parlance, again, there is a, a kind of a soul loss, which... Some cultures are better than others at restoring the human soul, you know, particularly indigenous cultures. You know, Native Americans, for example, have a lot to teach us about how the warriors are trained. You know, these are not soldiers sent off to fight for, you know, national, political, or even corporate interests. These people are well groomed in a warrior tradition, and that warrior tradition also welcomes those warriors back and reintegrates them in a society. And that's so important. And uh, so many of our vets are, are not supported when they return to the U.S. And uh, anyway, this film, one of the things it does is, is, is it promotes uh, reintegration of the warrior. Mm. Thank you so much for that. I think uh, what you just said is very important because these wars have been so controversial, uh, you know, since World War II. Uh, that the controversy was uh, really sort of dominating the the human experience of people going through it, uh, who, who, as you say, were not welcomed back and uh, perhaps not supported. Uh, as in, you know, what, I mean, is there such a thing as a form like a glorious war? Is there, you know, the the big one like like one war is glorious, but another isn't? There, it seems like perhaps the trauma happens because deep down, it's it might just not be our nature, you know, to go out there and and do this to people. And somehow we, we know that. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. 
Well, when we don't give the voice to our returning vets and welcome them home and let them become teachers and mentors on the nature of war, younger generations growing up need to hear the voices of returning warriors. And those warriors need to be healthy and they need to be supported. Uh, understanding the process of war uh, can only be done by really hearing the stories of those who have experienced it directly. These current wars largely only seem to be affecting the immediate families of those who are serving. And uh, the Vietnam War was affecting all aspects of American society. Everyone was hearing what a, about the tragedy of war. Uh, and not just in our country as well, you know, when the, Af when the Soviets left Afghanistan and, you know, those millions of, of, of Soviet soldiers went back to their villages and, and actually talked about what was really going on in Afghanistan, there was a sort of shift of consciousness and uh, it had a huge impact on society. Well, thank you, Stephen. And as we near the end of this interview, I just wanted to let listeners know that all your website and contact information are posted on GodspeedInstitute.com. And I wanted to ask if you had any, you know, mm. further thoughts or, or uh, sure. wishes you wanted to impart today, as, well, as the great Jesuits did uh, at the end of their homilies, I remember. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> well, uh, please uh, stay tuned. Watch Global Spirit. Send us your comments. Uh, GlobalSpirit.tv um, We're happy we're talking to you, and we'd love to hear back from you. Well, thank you again, Stephen, for all your work and for helping us, uh, helping humanity move forward together. You do a wonderful job, and it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Hope to speak with you again. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for the Godspeed Institute today. The Godspeed Institute is an independent educational organization dedicated to promoting religious tolerance and spiritually based living. If you'd like to hear this or any of our previous programs again or send it to someone, simply go to GodspeedInstitute.com. Please send your comments to info at GodspeedInstitute.com. We always enjoy hearing from you. And join us again as we continue to explore all the world's religions and spiritual belief systems. Until then, we wish you Godspeed on your journey.